Well, the next segment in our study in Genesis narrates for us the elevation of Joseph from a slave in the house of Potiphar to a ruler in the house of Pharaoh. And little does he know that the outcome of his affliction and suffering will be the salvation of the world. This account of Joseph brings a different focus to the patriarchal narratives. Up to this point, we see God working providentially to preserve them through their many foibles and failures. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all grew in their expressions of faith, but all of them had great bouts with unfaithfulness as well. God's providence is working in Joseph's life, but his consistent obedience and faithfulness is what is highlighted. And his attitude and actions in adverse circumstances certainly are commendable. And he best fits the Lord's desire for Abraham's household uh, when God said in Genesis 18 that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. It's also noteworthy that in the book of Genesis, Joseph is the only patriarch that is said to be full of the Spirit of God. And the one who recognized that truth was Pharaoh himself. Others also recognize that the Lord was with Joseph, and we'll see that as we continue this morning. Now, Joseph's rise to power covers the next three chapters and notes both his prosperity and his adversity. And each each experience brings Joseph a step closer to God's ultimate purpose of saving the world through him. Now, Joseph, you'll remember, had favored status in Jacob's house, but then he's betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. When he arrives now in Egypt, he will prosper in Potiphar's house, but then he's betrayed by Potiphar's wife and ends up in prison. Well, in prison, the Lord prospers him, but the one who later is capable of delivering him forgets about him, and he has to languish there for a longer period of time. And so we see in times of prosperity, the Lord brings adversity to test Joseph's purity and perseverance. And the main lesson that we draw from all this is that the Lord prospers and prepares his people for service through adversity. So let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful uh, that you have shown us in your word that those who come to you in faith are not going to have a bed of roses for the rest of their life. Lord, they will face the difficulties and adversities and trials of life just like everybody else does, but they will have you to be with them and you to help them and you to uh, further train them in life through those difficulties. As we see this coming out in the life of Joseph, may it be an encouragement to us today Uh, to realize the truth once again, that in adversity, you can bless us and use us. So Lord, we ask your blessing on your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we start this morning, we see in the first few verses here, 
that the Lord prospers his people despite their adversity. Now, verse 1 connects us with the events at the end of chapter 37. Last time, chapter 38 dealt with Judah's sojourn in the world, which was a whole lot different than Joseph's. But Joseph comes down now to Egypt, and he prospers in Potiphar's house. In contrast, Judah, who chose to go down to Canaan uh, uh, and live for the world, Joseph is forcefully taken down to Egypt, where he consistently lives for God. And it's ironic, because while Judah stayed in the land of promise, he didn't live up to God's expectations. But while Joseph, who is taken out of the land, well, he's a testimony of right living before the Egyptians. Now, God's providence has clearly come into play here as we read through these verses. Now, in verse 1, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Now imagine yourself again in the circumstances of this young man. You're a 17-year-old who is despised and rejected by your siblings, and you're sold into the hand of foreigners. You're hauled off to a strange culture. You have no idea what's going to happen to you. I'm sure you have fears in your heart, and what would be spinning through your mind? What would your attitude toward God be in this situation? Would you be angry? Would you wonder, why are you letting this happen to me, Lord? Would you be bitter? Would you be resentful? Yet we find no instance in this passage of complaint on Joseph's part. Now again, Joseph, when he arrives there, is not sold as a common slave who would usually be condemned to hard labor out in the fields. The Lord orchestrates his sale into the house of a person named uh, Potiphar, who is one of Pharaoh's high officials. As a matter of fact, he's captain of the guard, would suggest to us he's likely in charge of Pharaoh's bodyguard, who are responsible for keeping him safe. So he's really kind of one step away from the household of Pharaoh in this situation. And while he's in Pharaoh's house, or excuse me, Potiphar's household, the Lord prospers Joseph. Even in that adversity, Joseph is coming out on top. We're told, excuse me, we're told in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. And note there, the name of the Lord, all capitals, so this is the, the covenant name of God, uh, the name that his people recognize him, recognize him by. It's mentioned six times in this passage. It's mentioned twice in the previous chapter, but you remember only uh, in judgment of the wicked sons of Judah. So it's very significant that we see this name of God being used in relationship to the prosperity of Joseph. So as the Lord was with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, now the Lord is watching over Joseph. The result of this is success in his service to Potiphar. Uh, 
Uh, again, he's not in the fields. It says here he was a successful man and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. So the household, now that may involve some, uh, some people who worked out in the fields uh, that Potiphar may have owned. But we find that Joseph ends up in a chief place in the household itself, in the house of this man Potiphar. As Potiphar observes his actions, he recognizes that the Lord is with Joseph and he causes that everything that Joseph does to prosper. All right. So in verse three, he saw that his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. So God is orchestrating all this. Joseph is living the way he should. He's making the best of his circumstances. Potiphar observes this. He sees his attitude. He sees his abilities and he is favorable now to this slave that he bought. So Joseph finds favor and he serves him. That word serve there is a verb that indicates a high domestic service. And it means that he became the personal attendant of Potiphar. So he rises to the highest possible position that a person could have as a slave in that society. He made him overseer of his house. So he's head of all the affairs in the house of Potiphar. So the Lord prospers Joseph and in the process, he also prospers Potiphar because of Joseph's wisdom and expertise. So we find here that the Lord's blessing everything that Potiphar has. And this reminds us again, going back to the covenant God gave to Abraham, that all nations would eventually be blessed through his seed. We've seen that following through as one of the motifs in the book of Genesis. And the Lord also stated that whoever would bless Abraham and his seed, God would bless them. So we see that happening here. Uh, as uh, Potiphar recognizes the value of Joseph and treats him properly, God then in turn blesses Potiphar and his household. And he becomes so trusted that Potiphar has nothing to worry about in verse 6, except for, you know, sitting down at the table and eating what he wants to eat. And pretty much the idea of uh, he doesn't have to worry about any of the financial affairs, any of how things are run in the house. He can trust Joseph to do this. And all this supports the character of Joseph not being a spoiled brat, not being a tattletale, not being arrogant. He proves to be industrious, trustworthy, and faithful to the tasks that are given to him. And others recognize that God is truly with this person. And that causes us to think, well, do other people recognize that God is with me? Is he guiding me and directing me? And are other people being blessed because of God's hand upon me? So the Lord brought Joseph out of that adversity of being sold into slavery and blessed him with success. He's elevated now to the highest position that could be expected of anyone in those circumstances. But we also find here 
that in times of prosperity, God will send adversity to test his people. Things are going to change over time. Now, in this next section, the Lord tests Joseph's purity, and this is in contrast to what happened in the life of Judah while he was out in the world doing his own thing. So what we have here is a situation that developed where Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce Joseph. And the last part of verse 6 informs us that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And uh, he likely took uh, after the side of his uh, mother and grandmother because the same words are used to describe their outward appearance. They were beautiful women. And he is a a well-built, handsome fellow. And this is likely what uh, uh, caused Potiphar's wife to lust after him. So after some time, verse 7, his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. Now, Potiphar's wife doesn't even deserve a name in the passage, so we'll call her Mrs. P, all right? Uh, And Mrs. P uh, scrutinizes Joseph, but in a totally wrong way. Now, we don't know how much time has passed. It seems it would have taken... Uh, several months, maybe even a couple of years, for Joseph to rise to this position of uh, uh, stewardship. But remember, he starts off at 17. So I would have to say he's probably not even older than 20 by this time. So he's still a very young man. And a young man uh, with the the strength of life uh, in him, the, the hormones pumping, this would have been a very vulnerable time in his life as as an unmarried young man. And her longing eyes expresses her examination of him in a sensual way, and and her, her sense of what she wants to do comes out very clearly in those words, lie with me. And literally they mean lie beside me, but you know what she had in mind. And in the Hebrew, this is just two words uh, which portray brutish lust, something we might expect of a man rather than a woman toward a man. So let's be honest. Few young men in that situation would resist the invitation, especially when we find this was not just one single time. If you look at verse 10... She did this all the time. Uh, She did it day after day that he did not heed her to lie with her or be with her. So she's pestering him every day. And he's trying to escape it. Uh, One author wrote this about the situation. His moral excellence can be appreciated all the more if one remembers that he is a slave and that sexual promiscuity was a perennial feature of all slave societies. So they would use their slaves in this way. She is under her master of the house, Potiphar, so he would have to do what she said, but he's not going to. 
Now, Joseph displays faithfulness to God in rejecting those advances. And his response displays his wisdom and his godliness. All right, in verse 8, he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. He's committed to me all that he has in my hand. So first of all, he's alluding to his responsible position in the house and how irresponsible it would be to his duties to go through with something like this, to take advantage of his uh, position and have an affair with his master's wife. Then he goes on to say that uh, he has held nothing back from him, from his authority, from his use, except for his wife. That one area is taboo in the mind of uh, uh, of Joseph, and so it would be of the greatest dishonor, the greatest disrespect to engage in this sinful liaison. But most importantly, the question that he then asks shows that this sin is ultimately against the greatest power, and that is God himself. So he says in verse 9, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Not you, not Potiphar, but God is the greatest person we have to consider in these types of situations. All sin is ultimately against God. Nothing escapes his watchful eye. So Joseph's response is a question we should all keep in mind whenever we face a temptation to transgress. So Joseph continues to maintain his uh, purity over time uh, against the constant overtures of the temptress. And one might expect through all this, well, Joseph ought to be commended, he ought to be rewarded for his righteousness, but the exact opposite is what occurs. And that shows us here that sometimes God's people suffer adversity for doing the right thing. And we see this as the story unfolds, beginning at verse 11. Now, the Lord has been with Joseph. He's prospered him in Potiphar's house. In a time of severe temptation, which is really kind of ongoing, Joseph has been loyal to his master, loyal to his God, and loyal to his own integrity. But God allows further suffering in order to get Joseph where he needs to be in the future. And this is his method. This is allowance. And we see here, first of all, that Joseph is falsely accused of infidelity. And how often do people put on others what they really are like? We see this going on all the time today. What I do and what I want, uh, which is evil, I'm, uh, I'm throwing on you. And I'm making what I am like... Uh, uh, as right, and, and you doing it is, is wrong. So we have this situation going on here. All right, so Joseph is falsely accused of infidelity. And we're finding in verse 11, a day finally comes. It happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work. None of the men of the house was inside. Now in verse 10 it says, he is trying not even to be around her, not even to be with her. 
But that's probably impossible in the situation because he has work to do that involves being in the house. And on this particular day, none of the other servants are around. So Mrs. P takes this as an opportunity again to approach him with, uh, with her desires. And uh, the, uh, we're told here that on this day, uh, she actually caught him. She accosted him. She grabbed his garment. And here again, the, the, the use of a garment comes into a situation. We've seen that so many times in the story of Joseph. So she, uh, she actually attacks him, grabs his tunic, and approaches him again about what she wants to do. Now, this particular verb, to catch something, to grab something, it indicates a violent action, usually in reference to a man attempting to violate a woman, but here we see it reversed. Well, Joseph, he's not going to have anything to do with this. He wriggles out of her grasp, uh, and he runs outside to escape her approach. But unfortunately, his tunic is left in her hands. Well, we all know the saying, don't we? Hell has no fury like a woman spurned. And that's what's going on here. She immediately recognizes the situation and she concocts a ruse in order to punish Joseph. First thing she does is call in the servants. Uh, she saw that he had fled outside, verse 13, uh, her, his garment still in her hand. So she called the men uh, to the men of her house and spoke to them saying all these things. So she's bringing a false accusation against um, uh, uh, Joseph. Uh, look at how she does it. Uh, see, he has brought into us a Hebrew democracy. Well, who? Her husband. She's blaming her husband because he brought him here in the first place. It's not my fault, it's his fault. And then she says, look, he's a Hebrew. He's a foreigner. He's a stranger. Uh, and he brought him in to mock us. And so it's us against them. And then she says he came to mock us. The idea of mocking there is to make fun of, to sport with, to ridicule. So Joseph's alleged assault was demeaning to her and to all of them in the household. So she, uh, she was bringing these things out so that they will get behind her in this situation. And then she says uh, that she cried out, she screamed. Uh, knowing nobody was within earshot, probably, and she didn't really scream anyways. But again, all of this to make her accu accusations against Joseph to stick. Well, uh, she's told the servants, now uh, verse 16, she lays aside the garment, she keeps it with her until uh, Master Potiphar comes home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to mock me. So kind of the same thing, but now he's being put on the spot. Uh, you're the one who was responsible for bringing this person in here. Now you're the one responsible for getting rid of him. And she says, So what happened? I lifted up my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So she uses the same story as her husband 
comes home to hear all this from his wife. So we are seeing now that Joseph's unjustly accused and he will be unjustly cast into prison because Potiphar doesn't really have a whole lot of choice. When he gets home, we're told that he, uh, his anger was greatly aroused. He was incensed. And we're left to assume that he is enraged by Joseph's alleged behavior. If it was true, well, we can understand why a husband would respond in that way. But the object of his anger, interestingly, is not named. It doesn't say he was enraged against Joseph. It doesn't really tell us who he was enraged against. And so we might be able to take this a little bit differently than what we would naturally assume. Knowing the character of Joseph over such a long period of time, observing that God was with him, might cause him to doubt his wife's accusation. Could Potiphar have possibly been angry with his wife and not with Joseph? Did he know what she was really like already after being married for who knows how long? Was he upset at the prospect of losing his best servant through uh, whom he had been greatly blessed? Is he angry because he's forced now to save face for his wife? Well, either way, Potiphar is compelled to place Joseph in prison in verse 20. And we're told here, Then Joseph's master took him, put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. So the Lord's allowing this to happen, and uh, uh, attempted rape would have, in that society, carried the death penalty. So perhaps this is another indication that Potiphar did not believe his wife, or at least because of Joseph's previous faithfulness, he's going a little bit easy on him, and he's just going to throw him in jail. So Joseph is in prison now at the place where the king's prisoners are kept, which suggests to us that maybe this is not just a common prison. It would have been attached maybe even to Potiphar's house, and it would have been for, you know, kind of like the white-collar workers in the administration of uh, uh, King Pharaoh. So perhaps not as bad a situation as it could have been. Now, through this whole situation, Joseph's response and Joseph's emotions are all blanked. Nothing is told here about how he feels, what he thinks, but how would you feel being falsely accused of such a heinous crime? And what would your attitude be at being unjustly demoted from the highest rank that you could have as a slave in a household to now become a lowly uh, criminal in a prison? Yet in all of his adversity, God's plan is moving forward. And that brings us to the last thought here. When God's people suffer adversity for doing right, he continues to prosper and prepare them for future service. And we see this beginning in uh, verse 21 of chapter 
39, but also in chapter 40. So let's review this uh, quickly here. All right, in verses 21 to 23, the Lord prospers Joseph in the prison house like he prospered him in Potiphar's house. It, uh, the, the chapter ends like it began almost uh, w- with the same kind of wording. The keeper of the prison committed Joseph's hand, um, uh, all the prisoners who were in the prison, whatever they did there, it was his doing. Now, uh, back up here, I'm sorry, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph again and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. So again, he's put in charge. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority. Just like Potter didn't have to, uh, Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. So although this whole situation is adverse, the Lord is still using it and he's training him and he's with him and he's placing him in positions of authority that is training him for his ultimate goal. All right. So uh, Joseph prospers, but Joseph's also going to be tested again. Now, we're going to go through chapter 40, but we're going to go through it pretty quickly here. And we find here that as he's in prison, the Lord uses Joseph in the prison house like he had in Potiphar's house. And he used him to interpret uh, a couple of dreams while he was there. Came to pass after these after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them and he served them. So they were in custody for a while. Okay. The butler is not a butler like we think of today. He was the the cup bearer. So the chief cup bearer in charge of whatever the the uh, Pharaoh and his family drank and the chief baker, whatever they ate, something happens to offend the king. Perhaps there was some kind of uh, an attempt to poison the king and these are the two main people that you go to in that situation. They get thrown into prison so that you know, an investigation can take place. And while they're there, they go to the same prison where Joseph's at, and uh, Joseph is actually given to them in the same sense he was given to Potiphar. He is uh, their their escort, so to speak, while they're in, in prison. And uh, they're in custody for a period of time until this can all be worked out. So what happens? Well, Uh, both of these men confined in the prison had a dream. They each had a dream, uh, and one, one night and in one night, and each man's dream was its own interpretation. All right. Joseph came into them in the morning. He looked at them, saw they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of his Lord's house saying, what, why do you look so bad today? Now these men, in Egyptian society, especially high society where they were at, they would have looked at a dream of this nature as a divine revelation, a divine manifestation that the gods were trying to tell them something. 
And normally, because they couldn't interpret their own dream, there would be people in Pharaoh's court, magicians and wisdom and uh, uh, wise men, that you could go to and ask them about this dream. Well, they can't do that anymore. They're in prison. So they're dejected. They're upset. They're sad. Uh, Joseph empathizes with them. He sees this. Uh, he takes note of it. He wants to find out what's going on saying a little bit about his character there as well. And they explain, well, we've each had a dream and there's no interpreter for it. Well, Joseph gets across his worldview pretty quickly here. He says, do not interpretation belong to God? And he's already had a couple of dreams and he knew what the interpretation of those dreams were. So he says, tell them to me. So the chief butler tells his dream, the chief baker tells his dream, and God enables uh, Joseph to interpret the dream for them. So let's just quickly go through this. All right, the chief butler, the cupbearer, told his dream to Joseph. He said to him, Behold, in my dream a vine was before me. Well, that's natural. He's, he's, he would be ahead of the, uh, of, of the vineyards. And in the vine were three branches. It was as though it budded, its blossoms shot forth, its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. So Pharaoh is in this. Uh, he's doing his regular duties, squeezing out the, 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 the grape uh, juice into the cup, and Pharaoh takes it. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. So he tells him what this means, and he believes what it means because this is the only time in this narrative that Joseph actually mentions his circumstances and that he would like to get out of them. So he makes a request to the cupbearer whom he knows will be released in three days. And this is what he says. But remember me when it is well with you and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. So again, he's only one step away from Pharaoh, a high official between him and Pharaoh, and he hopes that by telling him this information, he'll be able to get out of there. And then he says, for indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. I was mistreated. I was kidnapped. I was sold into slavery. And also, I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. Now, this is interesting because the word dungeon is the exact same word as the word cistern where his brothers first put him. So he's delivered from a, a cistern, a dungeon in his homeland, and he ends up in a dungeon in Egypt. Just what we might not expect. But he wants to get out of there, and he's hoping that this person will be kind to him and mention this to Pharaoh, and maybe he'll be lifted up because he's suffering the same circumstance. He's been unjustly accused. Well, the cupbearer hears all this, and everything turns out good for the butler, so maybe it's going to turn out well for me. Uh, unfortunately, in verse 16, Chief Baker saw the interpretation was good. 
He said to Joseph, I also was in my dream, and there was three white baskets on my head. And the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. Well, that's not very good foreboding there. Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. And within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. So I'm sure he was really sad the next three days. Because we're told in verse 20 that what Joseph said came to happen exactly as he said it. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, or maybe the anniversary of when he came into power, that he made a feast for all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among the servants. That means he pulled them out of prison, uh, elevated them in a sense, and they were brought into his court where a judgment was made and it seems very likely the chief baker might have been involved in something that was worthy of death. And this is what happens. He restores the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. So we understand then that Joseph is being used of God to interpret dreams of a spiritual nature, of a uh, forward-looking nature, uh, and He's had dreams before. He's been able to do this. He still has this ability. He still has this gift. And in the future, God will use that again. So he's preparing him for the future, but the time has not yet come. Because we see one more situation through which he must persevere because the last verse says, yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The next verse says this is going to take place. This is going to be two years. Still, he has to be in prison. We don't know how long he's been in prison. We know that he was 17 when he came to Egypt. We know he was 30 when he was recognized by Pharaoh. So this 13-year period involved the, the his service in Potiphar's household and his imprisonment. So he's languishing in prison, even though he hasn't done anything wrong. He's been helpful in prison. He's shown that he is not a dreamer of of crazy uh, dreams, but he is a person who's in touch with God, and God's gifted him to understand such things, and God is using the adversity for his ultimate purpose, which we'll find out as we continue the story of Joseph. So there are some great lessons for God's people, uh, no matter what time they're living. So let's go through these. First of all, God promises to be with us through all circumstances of life. Some of those times are going to be prosperous. Some of those times are not. Joseph experienced favor and privilege through his youth in relationship to his father. And when things began, when things turned sour, he continued to serve God and be faithful in spite of the situation of slavery. And God could still be with him and help him in those down times, and God will do that today for his own people. <clears throat> then we see here that the Lord helped Joseph 
maintain his purity in a time of severe temptation. And that really is, is kind of a, um, an application to our youth. Uh, he was faithful to God. He was faithful to Potiphar. He was faithful to himself and his own purity. And we're living in a society that perhaps in some ways was even worse than in Egypt, where sexual gratification in all kinds of illegitimate ways is promoted. Immorality is expected, it's praised, it's worshipped in our society. Yet God says we're to flee fornication, as Joseph did, and we are responsible to maintain our purity in this this, uh, crazed society that's just going off on all kinds of things. And then we think of that question that Joseph brought before this woman who was tempting him. And this should be our motto in all forms of temptation. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Because all sin is sin against God. That should be in our heads every time we face a temptation of any nature. And finally, in the face of adversity, God still uses his people and prepares them for greater service. Uh, Each elevation and demotion that Joseph faced moved him closer to God's ultimate goal for his life. And through adversity, God trains us for greater service. Let me close with a couple of quotes uh, that I came across. First of all, yokes born in youth have at least three results. They prove personal integrity, they prove spiritual maturity, and they prepare for fuller opportunity. In nature and in human life, the best things are not the easiest, but the hardest to obtain. And then another commentator said, those who are convinced that God desires to use them in greater capacities will demonstrate their unwavering faith in the midst of discouraging situations. May we take to heart these great truths as we face the adversities of life. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the way you worked in Joseph's life. We know, Lord, that you are with him all the time, whether it was when he prospered or when he faced the adversity. And we know, Lord, that you were training him for future service. Help us, Lord, to uh, be similar to Joseph. Help us to be thankful and gracious for the times of prosperity and be used of you in them. Uh, Help us, Lord, in the times of adversity to realize that you're still teaching us and preparing us Uh, for uh, what you have for us. And Lord, help us to realize that uh, in times of temptation, we need to look to you for strength uh, to overcome. Again, Lord, we pray you use these things to encourage our hearts today. And in the future, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.